0: This is episode 14 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Morris, and welcome back for another episode here on the Better Bible Reading Podcast if you've been listening to previous episodes, then you will know that last week I announced that I'm going to start releasing a new episode, not every other week as it has been in the past, but actually every single Thursday you will be getting another podcast episode from yours truly. So I hope that you will enjoy that. Uh, last week I started uh, introducing something to go in between these kind of in-studio episodes, and that was what I called Teaching Thursdays, and I'm sharing in those episodes sermons or Sunday school or lecture recordings of myself that have been done in various locations over the last few years, and I'm sharing those with you as a little bit of a supplement. To our discussions that we have, such as the episode for today. If you're listening to this on the day of release, then I do want to say happy Independence Day to you. It is July 4th at the time of this release, 2019. And if you are an American, live in America, happy Independence Day. And speaking of independence and freedom, how has your Bible reading been going? Has it felt liberating? Have you taken action on much of what I have shared with you over the last few months, either on this podcast or on my website. If you haven't, then I want to direct your attention to my website, where I am sharing free training on how to study a book of the Bible. And you can head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free training, and you will be able to take advantage of that. And I'm convinced that if you do enroll in that free training via email, you will have your head wrapped around what it means to study a book of the Bible, how to start that from scratch, and what to look for as you're doing it so that you have a helpful and beneficial time studying through the Bible. So head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free training And I'll be able to help you out from there, from the instructions on the website. So today we're wrapping up our discussion we've been having for the last month or so about the writing styles of the Bible. And for today's episode, we want to think about the writing style of logic. Now, logic, to be quite frank with you, is basically a lost art in most of Contemporary culture. You don't hear a lot of logic. You hear a lot of illogical things being said. Um, And a lot of us, when we hear the word logic or think about the ramifications of it, we're referred to the realm of philosophy. We think about people like Plato and Aristotle and the historical figures that were really involved in rhetoric as a profession, as a way of life. They took students to study underneath them. They traveled. They were itinerant speakers, rhetoricians, as they were called. And their profession literally was all about speech and communication. And that always collided with worldviews and philosophy. So in things being articulated, the concept of logic really came about as an academic discipline. But I don't want to say that Plato and Aristotle and the like invented logic as if it didn't exist prior to them, or that it is a kind of Greek philosophy um, idea from ground level, because it's really not. It's certainly used in that, certainly popularized by that, but it's not first and foremost a Greek thing, because when we think about logic, we want to think about the concept of truth, the concept of reality and things that we say about reality, whether they are true or not, whether they are coherent or not, and whether they are absurd or, to use our word for today, logical. And that idea of logic is used quite often in our Bibles. We won't have time in this episode to take a look at all of them, but as is my practice, I want to simply point you in the right direction, give you a couple examples, and let you start to look uh, from here on out for different occurrences of it, because it will just make you all the better as a reader when you're reading through the Bible. So, we've talked about the idea of citations, quotations from the Bible— We've talked about parallelism or chiastic structures. Those were, look at the previous few episodes about the writing styles of the Bible. We've tackled those. And then today, our last one is the writing style of logic. And I want to look at two key figures as authors in the Bible who utilized logic. As I said, there's certainly more than these two examples. But for today, we want to think about two key figures. The first one being Paul, and the second one being John. And the two examples we're going to start with what Paul does and if you're in a place where you have a Bible you can find where I'm at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you are unable to have a Bible in hand or if you're driving or something like that just listen carefully and refer back as quickly as you can once you're able to get a Bible in hand and take a few moments to study. So When you get to the book of 1 Corinthians, I mentioned this in previous episodes, this really is a crash course of Christian living, because it seems that Paul is tackling so many cultural problems with the church in Corinth, and he really covers a survey, kind of an A to Z, of Christian living. He tackles all the big categories of life, and then... In the second to last chapter, he moves to the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. And in case you're wondering what that might be, or if you're wanting to guess what it is, it might surprise you that Paul doesn't move to Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, he, he does, in a way— but that's not his final story. That's not the doctrine that he focuses on as an end-all be-all. And if you have headings in your Bible, such as I do in my English Standard Version, my ESV translation of the Bible, mine has a heading of chapter 15 as the resurrection of Christ. So we're not playing games here or or leaving you in suspense, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus as that cardinal doctrine as Paul sees it. But what he doesn't do in here is simply articulate the orthodox historic doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He does, but he doesn't leave us there. In fact, he moves to the realm of logic. He moves to logically outline what he has to say about the resurrection and what it means, how we wrap our minds around it in some sense, but most importantly, how much Christianity hinges upon the truthfulness, the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So what I want to do is, for the sake of context, since we're only looking at two examples in this episode— I'm going to read to you Paul's introduction. So what he does here, it happens in two parts. First, he introduces the doctrine, and then he moves to the logical ramifications of it. So the first thing we're going to do is read what he has to say explicitly about the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ. So here's what it says. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So, so far, Paul has simply laid out the gospel. And notice, he communicates the gospel as this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it's kind of the simple formula of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is nothing new in terms of Christian doctrine or Christian teaching. This is simple, pure, historic gospel message. So that's it, right? That's all we have to worry about. Well, that's not how Paul sees it. How Paul sees it is that he wants to really trace that teaching out a bit. He wants to articulate it a little bit more. And what Paul does is Paul kind of becomes Paul the rhetorician here. He kind of becomes Paul, the one who communicates the logical implications of the resurrection. So some ways that we can catch this, and this is in some ways kind of explicit to the epistles or the New Testament letters, in other words. You'll see logical arguments being made, and they're very often uh, constructed in the if-then construction. So the if-then formula really is part of the logic formula. But we'll see a couple other examples here of some other key things to look at. But listen... Um as Paul articulates the if, so here's what he has to say. This is picking it up right where we left off, which is verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I don't want to leave us there. I want to finish by one more verse, although it kind of goes into a new idea, but I want to say this. But in fact, Christ is. Has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So you notice what he does repeatedly in this is he keeps introducing the if then, if then, if then. He's articulating a logical argument here. And the way that he does it is not simply by the positive side of the resurrection. Paul, In other words, what Paul doesn't do here is demonstrate the positive of Jesus' resurrection. He doesn't say, now, if Christ has been raised, then this is true. If Christ has been raised, this is true. If Christ has been raised, this is true. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He does the negative aspect of it. He does kind of a logical negation, if you will, and what he does— is if Christ has not been raised, then this is true. If Christ has not been raised, then this is true. In logic, there's actually a Latin phrase for this, and it is reductio ad absurdum. It is the reduction of the absurd, or reduction to absurdity. And this is a very effective argument in logic, because basically what you do is you take your opponent's belief or your opponent's argument and you say, well, if what you're saying is true, in this case, that Christ has not been raised and there is no resurrection, there is no bodily, literal resurrection, whether it's just spiritual or whatever the argument was, the reality was they were saying there is no true resurrection of Jesus Christ that ever happened. So what Paul does is he says, okay, if that's true, if it's true then Christ that Christ has not been raised, then this follows. And what he does is he basically makes the argument that if Jesus has not been literally bodily raised from the dead, then the whole structure of Christianity crumbles to nothing. I mean, Paul says it, he says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, anything we had to say or have to say about God is in vain because we're making him a liar. God has clearly, explicitly declared this reality of Jesus' resurrection. If it's not true, then we're making him out to be a liar. Our faith is in vain, and then the kind of linchpin here, or, or the The final blow is that if he hasn't been raised, there's no atonement. He says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, which means no good news, no gospel message, no forgiveness of sin, only condemnation and damnation awaits us. So to Paul... The reality of the resurrection is a non-negotiable reality, and the way that he articulates that is not just by tracing out what the resurrection is, but by introducing it in the logical argument of reductio ad absurdum, which is, again, the reduction to absurdity. In other words, what does everything reduce down to in this argument? Well, to Paul and to us, all Christianity reduces down to absolute absurdity if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So there's our first example of the writing style of logic. Paul, it seems very clear, is not interested in just throwing away doctrine as if it doesn't matter. And this is truly pertinent to our culture, because what you see happening in so many denominations is the trend, and this is not a new thing, this, is, this has been the fight clearly here ever since Paul's day, but we're not in the safe realm today. We haven't graduated from these arguments. In fact, even if you think about uh, one of my heroes of the faith, J. Gresham Machen, who founded Westminster Theological Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination, what he was fighting in his own denomination, the PCUSA, in the early part of the 1900s, was that these cardinal doctrines such as the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection were being thrown away in favor of liberal theology, or liberalism, as it was called. And And I'm sad to say that this has not gone away. In fact, this has greatly multiplied the trend of liberal theology, whether it's in a Presbyterian denomination or a different one, is that we don't really need doctrine anymore. We don't really have to be so dogmatic and be so cold-hearted and fight for these doctrines because life isn't about doctrine. Life's about love. Life's about acceptance. Life's about... Relationships. But Paul is saying none of those things really matter if we throw away the doctrine because if the doctrine is perishable, if it has a shelf life, if it's only useful for a bit of time and then it becomes irrelevant in favor of our cultural trends, then you have no Christianity left. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a church, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a certain denomination. If you reject these things you're you have no gospel you have no forgiveness of sins you have no Christ you have no God who tells the truth. I mean this is serious business. So this isn't just a technical or an academic study of the idea of logic but Paul uses it to argue for the most important doctrine in his mind, the doctrine on which the whole concept of Jesus, the whole message of Jesus, the whole historical account of Jesus either stands or falls. Because even if we argue for the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the only possible way that that matters or that that becomes true is if he really was raised from the dead. Because if he died on the cross, that really just makes him no different from all the thousands of other people during the time of the Roman Empire who were sentenced to death by crucifixion. What makes Jesus stand out is that his claim for accomplishing the forgiveness of sins for all of his people becomes validated and true by the fact that death could not keep him, by the fact that he literally, truly, physically was raised from the dead bodily on the third day. And that's what Paul argues for here, and he does so by logic. So our second and final one is... Not going to be quite as in-depth as that, but it is nonetheless another example. This one is a different variety, but it is because it's a different author, and I mentioned it was the Apostle John. And again, if you do have a Bible, you can turn to First John, so not the Gospel of John, but First John, which is very much close to the end of our Bibles, just a couple books before Revelation, the last book of the Bible. So in 1 John, as I said, John has quite a different writing style than Paul. He articulates things differently. He sets up his letters quite differently, but he's also addressing different issues with a different context than Paul was, to be sure. But in 1 John, John is making an argument or he's positing something, or he's arguing for a logic, and he does so, in this case, a little bit different from the way Paul does in terms of the resurrection, but it's still a doctrinal argument, and it focuses on Jesus Christ. So, the historical evidence of when when it comes to asking the question okay what is this particular book of the bible about well first john it seems that john was writing against what was called gnosticism and in gnosticism we can kind of think about gnosticism as the kind of heading and then you have these subheadings or these varieties of Gnosticism, and to get an understanding of what exactly we're talking about and dealing with here, it is the variety or the subheading of Gnosticism, which is Docetism. Now, it's not necessarily important that we know these words. These are literally just Greek words transliterated into English. So, it's not necessarily translated. It, it's still a Greek word, but it's moved into the English language using English letters and English pronunciations. So, kind of the best way I could explain this so we're not a little confused and just getting into abstract ideas Gnosticism is the articulation of knowledge. That's what the Greek word means, gnosis. So, those who were called the Gnostics were not within Orthodox Christianity. But they were in the fold, if you will. They were kind of in the midst of Christian teaching and Christian gathering, but they were articulating this higher level knowledge, which is why they were called the Gnostics, this higher level knowledge or this secret knowledge. And in the variety of it, of docetism, that knowledge was the articulation that Jesus was not actually a human, but he was actually a phantom or almost if you want to say kind of a kind of a ghost or or even i'm sure that they weren't thinking of this at the time but one of the things that i kind of think of is you think about star wars for example when you have like these force ghosts right they're they're almost like holograms you can't touch them they're kind of you run your hand you run it right right through them they they appear to be there in person Uh, But they're not actually there because they're not actually in a physical body. But that word of docetism is the Greek word which means to seem or to appear. So it articulates the fact that Jesus, although he appeared to be in a human body and appeared to be an actual human, it's that he actually wasn't. He just simply appeared to be, he was a phantom or a ghost, or something to that variety. And again, getting to that argument, first of all, it completely destroys the Christian faith, because if Jesus was not truly human, then there was no real suffering. And that's kind of what it gets to in the concept of docetism. So, they would say, well, Jesus wasn't an actual human, he wasn't in an actual body, he just appeared to, so therefore his suffering was not legitimate or true, it just simply appeared to be or had the communication to us that it was, even though it actually wasn't. So, of course, if you're following with me, this is kind of dangerous ground to get into, but it may surprise you to see that John argues against this, How might he do it? Well, I'm sure you're picking up on where we're going. He does so logically. Now, in this case, he doesn't do the negative logical argument, but he does the positive logical argument. And this is exactly what he does in his introduction to 1 John. So notice that John doesn't start out his letter here the way that we kind of have the the typical structure of Paul. Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, um, and then he moves into his, who he's addressing it to sometimes, or a a little bit of a theological introduction, and then he moves into the body of his letter after his greetings, etc. But in this case, John kind of just jumps right into um, what matters. And if you've followed with the, the docetism belief and what it is saying or what it is rejecting, Notice the words that John used. I'm going to read this first paragraph. It's the first four verses of 1 John. Here's what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it. John appeals to the senses here. You have the hearing, the seeing, the beholding, and the touching. And all of this, he communicates as he uses these designators of the word of life, the eternal life, And that they have fellowship with that. So, so far, we're just talking about a concept, right? We're talking about the concept of eternal life, the concept of the word of life. So is John just talking about concepts? Is he talking about feelings? What is he talking about? Well, he clarifies what he's talking about, and he clarifies that he's talking about a person. Because he connects that fellowship with the eternal life, with the word of life, to the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus who is the Word of Life, Jesus who is the eternal life, Jesus with whom we have fellowship and relationship with. And John says that this Jesus, this Jesus Christ, is the one who has appeared to us, whom we have heard, whom we have seen, who we have looked upon, and who we have touched with our hands. Now, that's incredibly important, because if that's true, that means that John is arguing for the fact that Jesus literally was in a physical body, that he literally was a human, and that he did appear in time and space with us. And notice that that completely goes against the docetism, which argues the fact that Jesus was not actually human, he was just kind of a phantom. He just appeared to be a human. Well, if he was a phantom or a ghost or whatever the case may be, that means that John could not have touched him as he said. It also speaks to the fact that when Jesus was resurrected, this kind of connects our conversation to Paul, what he was saying, when Jesus was resurrected, when he was raised from the dead, You'll remember that the 12 touched his scars. They touched his hands. They touched his side. They ate with him. I mean, these are all things that could only have happened if Jesus did have a true physical, literal body, if he was a man. Now, this does not say that Jesus was not divine, that he was not God. But the argument being made here is to argue for the true humanity of Jesus and the fact that he did have a true physical body. And notice that that John here, he does so from a logical argument. If these experienced senses, especially the touching that we have touched with our hands, it logically follows that if, if that is true, then Jesus must have had an actual body that he didn't, he wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a um, ghost or some kind of a variety of that. And again, this is the illogical argument. In this case, a positive one. Remember, Paul's was a negative one. John's is a positive one. But both of these are concepts of doctrine. But just realize, if I can just stress that Christianity is not all about doctrine, but it is certainly not less than doctrine. Doctrine is not something that we graduate from because doctrine leads us to Jesus. When we have our mouths open to say anything about Jesus, we have automatically entered into the realm of doctrine. Even to say that Jesus doesn't care about doctrine, all he cares about is love, is still a doctrine about Jesus. So what I don't want you to gather from this is that Paul and John and the others are just interested in these high level academic intellectual conversations. But instead, there is a logic to Christianity. Christianity is not illogical. And that's one of the arguments that's made from secular culture that Christianity is all about these supernatural things and miracles and those are absurd. Well, if Paul or John didn't actually believe these supernatural or miraculous occurrences because they were worried that it would seem irrational or illogical, then why in the world would they argue logical, rational arguments unless they truly believed that these things happened and that they were non-negotiable realities or truths of the Christian faith? So again... The idea of logic, especially logic having to do with doctrine, is not an academic thing. It is an articulation about God and His truth and what He has revealed to us in His Word, which means it is absolutely important, it is irreplaceable, and it must be contended for and upheld because the moment we cast it away, we're no longer talking about Christianity. We may have it in title. We may have it placard upon our church building. But if we reject it, we are no longer, according to Paul and according to John, a church because they certainly did not reject it, graduate from it, or move on beyond it. So, friend, I hope you've really enjoyed this episode our conversation about logic, the writing style of the Bible. I'm excited for what comes in the future for us on these episodes with our Teaching Thursdays and the upcoming episodes about some other topics. Again, if I can just invite you one more time, if you haven't taken advantage of that free training I'm offering on my website, I really do think it will be helpful for you. But hey, you know, if you're looking for something else, if you want to see some content, a different podcast episode, a different blog post, whatever the case may be, all you got to do is contact me because I'm interested in writing and producing content that is helpful for you and the problems that you want to see solved in your Bible reading experience. So contact me, Kevin, at betterbiblereading.com, or if you want to take advantage of that free training, go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free training, sign up and it'll be sent directly to you via email, and you'll enjoy it, and you'll benefit from it. But that wraps it up for this episode. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.